Hi, everybody. Cheryl Ackeson here. Welcome to another edition of the Cheryl Ackeson Podcast. Today, what happens when the media assumes racial motivations when there's no evidence of such a thing? And a look at the inevitable official reversals beginning to take shape on COVID public health policy. It is a disturbing and unjournalistic practice. Assuming racism or hate or other motivations involving crimes committed against a victim, particularly who is or was part of a minority group, but never making that assumption when crimes are committed against whites. The most recent high-profile case of that is the sad group of murders of four Muslim men in Albuquerque, New Mexico. You've probably heard about these because many in the media were very anxious to tie these to what they thought, I guess, was some white supremacist who assaulted these poor Muslim men and shot them and killed them. And listen, for example, statements put out in the aftermath of the fourth person who was shot in early August. The Islamic Center of New Mexico put out a statement through their attorney saying, it's a surreal time for us right now, our families and our children. It's not just about the Muslim community. We still do have a message of hope. We need to catch the perpetrator. Hate will not win. It cannot win. And one article I'm reading goes on to say that law enforcement officials believe the shootings of these Middle Eastern and Muslim residents, quote, may be connected and racially and or religiously motivated. Now, I would point out there was zero evidence indicating that that was the case. The only thing they were relying on is the fact that there were four men who happened to be of Muslim religion who were killed. It certainly doesn't mean they were targeted for that reason. In fact, one of the things that crossed my mind when I heard about it was that there may be a dispute within the Muslim community in Albuquerque among a group that somehow led to these killings. And lo and behold, that turns out to be, according to police, the new theory of what really happened in this case. Now that they've arrested a suspect who happens to be Muslim himself, who attended the same mosque, say police, as the four victims who were killed, and who, the suspect I'm talking about, is an Afghanistan foreigner who's been living in the U.S. for about five years. But again, before the facts were known, these assumptions were made including by many in the media. President Biden stoked the racist sentiment by tweeting, these hateful attacks have no place in America, that he was angered and saddened by the killings, and that his administration, quote, stands strongly with the Muslim community. Again, the assumption there, without any evidence, that the poor victims were targeted by somebody as part of a Muslim hate crime. And I got to thinking, how many times in a row can the media jump on board with these ill-advised conclusions before they learn their lesson? I mean, I think the lesson is there will never be enough lessons to stop people in this environment from forming these racist and unfounded conclusions. Let's go over a few of the examples where there should have been lessons learned. First of all, a really important case because the misreporting on this arguably led to riots and deaths and a movement that still to this day evokes a phrase that was never uttered, according to investigators. It's the case of Michael Brown, a black suspect who was shot by police officer Darren Wilson in 2014. 
And since then, and even today, there are people who hold up signs and say, hands up, don't shoot. Because if you remember initially, there were witnesses who said that Michael Brown had his hands up when the police officer shot him as if he was trying to give up. And it's okay to report those theories if you're a reporter and there's news developing and you have witnesses who, in this case, weren't telling the truth, but you didn't know that at the time. It's okay to report those things, but obviously the media shouldn't report them as if they are verified. And that's where the mistake was made. There was no balance given with reporters pointing out that this may not have happened. It was all very one-sided and inflammatory. And then a year later, when the Obama Justice Department finished its investigation of the whole mess, and I think a lot of people thought they would find against the police officer, if there was any way possible, the Obama Justice Department, led by Eric Holder at the time, ruled that Michael Brown was not holding his hands up saying, don't shoot. He was attacking Officer Darren Wilson when Wilson shot him in self-defense. It further went on to say the witnesses who had claimed to see Michael Brown holding up his hands and saying, don't shoot, were apparently lying as credible witnesses who actually were there and did witness the events gave an entirely different account. To this day, I think a lot of people don't know about that. Certainly a year later, the report exonerating the police officer was not given nearly as much attention as the initial news reports. Another example, the Washington Post settled a $250 million defamation lawsuit with that one-time student from Covington High School, Nick Sandman, after the Post, and many in the media in fact, falsely reported that Sandman was the aggressor in a videotaped confrontation that was shown with a Native American in Washington, D.C. And then we can go back further and look at some really bad decisions by the FBI to leak names to the media or to pinpoint people as suspects and really destroy their lives when those people didn't turn out to be the ones who committed the crime. For example, the FBI wrongly accused and the media defamed Richard Jewell in the Atlanta Olympic bombings. It turns out Jewell had actually been a hero, moving people away from a suspicious backpack before it exploded. But of course, that didn't make it in the initial news reports. The media and the U.S. government horribly defamed a scientist named Wen Ho Lee. They falsely accused him of being a Chinese spy, saying he had stolen secrets to our most sensitive nuclear warheads. I covered that case, and among the media that was sued and had to pay Wen Ho Lee, CBS and I were not sued in this case because I think we, I, were the only ones that didn't defame him. I certainly reported at some point when he was under investigation or when the government was naming him as a supposed spy, but I had very good sources. I knew he really wasn't a legitimate suspect, and I made sure to balance my reporting by saying that there were others who said he was completely innocent. A lot in the media simply got on the bandwagon with the FBI and basically convicted him without the evidence. There was a case of scientist Stephen Hatfill. This goes back a ways. He ended up winning millions of dollars from the government after the FBI and the media wrongly accused him in the anthrax attacks. The media followed him around for years. In fact, the FBI was giving the media his name, leaking his name to the media as the suspect or the supposed perpetrator. He wasn't guilty, and he eventually won a defamation lawsuit. Jesse Smollett, more recently, the actor, 
you may know, was convicted after making false and racist claims that he'd been attacked and noosed by white Trump supporters. When the media reported that incident, and I'm not saying they shouldn't have reported the initial claims, too many times they didn't make it clear that it was an accusation, that it may or may not be true, that there wasn't evidence to prove it one way or the other at the time. This is a big one. The FBI lawyer that you probably have heard about who got convicted of doctoring evidence in a wiretap against Trump associate Carter Page. What a big story. The whole Russia collusion narrative that was pursued by the FBI based on false evidence from Democrats and others. The media got on board with that, didn't report it in a balanced way, basically convicted Trump of being a Russian spy for over a year, relentlessly, as well as some of those surrounding him, including Carter Page, whom they falsely maligned as a Russian spy. Of course, none of that turned out to be true. There was only one conviction, at least so far, by that FBI lawyer, and the Department of Justice hasn't shown any public desire to hold accountable all those who are part of that doctored wiretap, nor has anyone been publicly held accountable when, after the bad wiretap, there was a sampling done by analysts with the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, a sampling done of other FBI wiretaps to see if they also had deficiencies, not just the doctored evidence, but they had not followed proper rules and requirements. And it was found that in each of the samples, that was the case over and over again. And yet no word that anybody has been held accountable for that. Let's move on. There was Kyle Rittenhouse, who, as you know, was accused of the wrongful shootings of his attackers during a riot. He was widely convicted in the media. That story was not told as if there were two sides. Then he was acquitted in a court of law after a jury who heard the evidence said that he acted in self-defense. What about the case of Rolling Stone? They did this huge article in which they defamed a group of University of Virginia frat brothers. I don't know if you remember this. It was a hugely anonymously sourced article about a woman who had supposedly been raped and how common this supposedly was uh, without it being handled properly, supposedly by the university. And so these guys were accused of sexual abuse and rape, but it never happened. Rolling Stone and the reporter had to pay a big defamation payment to the frat brothers who'd been defamed. And then speaking of ones that have racist overtones, there's a whole group of those too, where the media makes assumptions after a crime, particularly after a victim makes certain accusations, when there is no evidence to support their accusations or when, in some cases, the evidence may have been staged or made up. Again, it's fine for journalists to report the accusations, but not to get on board with them as if the journalists have confirmed the accusations to be true. That's where I take issue with it. A week before Donald Trump was first elected, Hopewell Missionary Baptist Church in Mississippi was torched and the words, vote Trump, were found painted on the outside. Now, I remember thinking when I saw that, yeah, I guess it's possible that a Trump supporter would really write vote Trump on the outside of a torched church, but it crossed my mind that it was also possible that somebody trying to make Trump and his supporters look bad could have done such a thing. Well, at the time, the mayor of the city condemned the incident as a hate crime and stated that it was an attack on the black church and the black community. That was a quote. However, police later arrested who for the arson? A black church member. 
They say the man staged the fire to look like an attack by Trump supporters, a la Jesse Smollett. And even today, I recently looked and some of the corrected news reports retain the false headlines that seem to blame Trump and his supporters. Then the day after Trump was elected, there was an incident at Elon University in North Carolina that made national news. Hispanic students reported finding what they called a hateful note written on a classroom whiteboard that read, bye-bye, Latinos. After that story made national news, it was learned that the message was actually written by a Latino student who was upset about the results of the election. Also, the day after Trump was elected, a gay man, reportedly a filmmaker, claimed that homophobic Trump supporters smashed his face with a bottle outside a bar in Santa Monica, California. There was even a bloody photograph of this posted on Twitter, and he was said to have been treated at a local hospital. Well, police investigated the media reports because it made quite a splash. The media tends to pick up on such things and amplify it, sometimes in a one-sided way, even when there isn't evidence. Well, police investigated the media reports and said no complaint by the man was ever filed, that there was no evidence of a crime, and that a check of local hospitals say police showed there was no victim in such an incident. The week after Trump's election, there was a Muslim student at the University of Louisiana, Lafayette. She claimed that Trump supporters approached her, pulled off her head covering, and assaulted her and robbed her. According to police, she later admitted fabricating the whole story. And the last one that I will mention in this string happened on June 28, 2018. There was a horrible newsroom shooting, and a newspaper reporter falsely tweeted that the shooter, quote, dropped his Trump Make America Great Again hat on the newsroom floor before opening fire. That never happened. So to review, again, it's acceptable for journalists to note theories of a crime, including even the theories that activists are invoking without evidence. It's fair to report that that's what's happening, that activists are coming up with theories or victims are making accusations. But it is not acceptable for journalists to tacitly endorse such assumptions and theories prematurely as if they know that they happened. As of this recording, President Biden has not corrected the record publicly to acknowledge his apparently mistaken and racist assumption regarding the Muslim killings in Albuquerque. And there is no obvious record when I conducted a simple Internet search that shows that analysts or media outlets are acknowledging their apparent error in the assumptions, although... Many are reporting the arrest of the Muslim suspect. I don't see a bunch of articles saying the obvious, reporting that there had been these ill-advised, without evidence conclusions made by some in the media and by some analysts. Seems to me a valid article would say something like, apparently not a hate crime after all, or suspect in Muslim killings, not white supremacist, but a fellow Muslim, or Muslim foreigner from Afghanistan arrested in the deaths of four Muslims. However, the articles after the arrest of the Muslim suspect have an entirely different theme and tone than they did before the suspect was identified. Now, instead of assuming a racist motivation on the part of the killer, there's a plea not to prematurely dig into motivations. One headline reads, Victim's brother says, please stop guessing why. More after a short break. Thank you. 
In this age of a highly controlled media landscape, it's never been more important to fight the heavy hand of censorship and support truly independent journalism. Go to CherylAckison.com and click the store tab for a great way to do that. There are all kinds of cool products. A lot of them make great gifts that feature catchphrases like, I tested positive for critical thinking and do your own research, make up your own mind, think for yourself. Proceeds support independent journalism causes like the Cheryl Ackeson Ion Awards for off-narrative, accurate reporting. Go to CherylAckison.com and click the store tab. The worm is turning, as they say. The CDC has now come out and admitted or acknowledged a lot of its mistakes, mistaken messaging, mistaken facts that were put out. Of course, I think a lot of experts believe it's too little too late because many scientists were saying these things two years ago and were censored or smeared for saying the very same thing that CDC is now late coming to the table with and admitting. And I think here on this podcast, we were among the first to question why natural immunity seemed to be ignored by public health officials, something so obvious and so important wasn't addressed at all as if it didn't exist. Now CDC has come around to saying, because the vaccines are pretty ineffective, that those who are vaccinated are about the same as someone who's had COVID and has not been vaccinated in terms of their presumed immunity. Well, now that CDC is saying aloud and officially recognizing what so many others saw so long ago, but were smeared for and canceled for, it's kind of like they think the whole thing's going to go down the memory hole, like we won't remember how wrong they were and we'll just now trust and accept whatever the latest thing that they say is. And don't even get me started on the story that I did on the Amish approach to COVID. I did a TV video program on this for Full Measure. It was very popular, and even after it aired, it got millions of views on a YouTube channel where we post these things that I don't even publicize. And it drew so much attention, it just drove the propagandists crazy that we would be reporting about a community of people who didn't do anything pretty much that public health officials recommended that they do. They didn't get medical attention, isolate, stay closed, close the schools, vaccinate, nothing. And by all accounts, they fared no worse than anybody else. In fact, they would tell you they think they fared a lot better. And as I said in the story, hard facts are difficult to come by because they don't test for COVID. They don't care that anybody believes or doesn't believe if their approach worked. But we don't see any spike in deaths that's different from anything else that happened anywhere else in the middle of COVID. So that's some indication that they certainly didn't do worse. And think of what this means if there's a community of tens of thousands who basically didn't take any of the public health measures that were advised that destroy the global economy that will be felt as repercussions in our education system, in our work system for probably decades to come, this community that didn't take any of those measures and didn't fare any worse. Think about what that means. And you know, some of the scientists on the narrative went about trying to prove that, well, maybe things didn't really turn out so well for the Amish. And the best they could do, from what I can see, is they selectively took what was probably one of the worst months in terms of the Omicron outbreak and compared the deaths among the Amish 
though there are no hard facts or records pointing to COVID deaths specifically, but comparing the deaths among the Amish that occurred uh, basically anecdotally during this time period with the deaths that occurred outside of the Amish community during the time period, and the conclusion of those who are trying to prove that the Amish didn't have a better way, the conclusion was, well, they didn't fare any better. The death rate was about the same. And I had to kind of point out, well, that means they did fare better. If their death rate was about the same during a really bad month for COVID at a time when they hadn't taken the public health measures that had destroyed the global economy, then doesn't that say a lot? And it's certainly apparently something they don't want us talking about or thinking much about how the Amish do things and how we might have done things differently and either saved lives or suffered no worse toll while saving our entire economy and education system. But it's a weird time because as these revelations are finally being recognized, there are still holdovers from the propaganda or the measures that we now know didn't work, don't work, or perhaps never worked. For example, there are still military troops being told to get out of the military because they won't take a COVID vaccination, either for religious objections or health objections. It makes no logical sense, since even CDC now acknowledges what others were saying for a long time, that the vaccine doesn't prevent the spread of COVID. And there's still a huge push to vaccinate the very young with COVID vaccinations, even though by many expert accounts, we are not in any sort of COVID emergency. And by all accounts, the very young have what is statistically a near zero chance of serious adverse events from COVID. So the fact that many public health experts and doctors are still pressing for the young and the very young to get a COVID vaccination that doesn't work well, poor disease that doesn't really impact them to any meaningful extent is puzzling to say the least. And then there's all those people that were fired from their jobs in healthcare or education or other professions because they didn't want to vaccinate with the COVID vaccine. Well, in the midst of all of this, a little discussed but important lawsuit outcome. I've written about it at CherylAckison.com. The headline is COVID Vaccine Religious Objectors win multi-million dollar lawsuit against hospital system. Here's what it says. North Shore University Health System has been ordered to pay out a first-of-its-kind settlement to healthcare workers who challenged the hospital system's COVID-19 vaccine mandates. The healthcare workers will share an overall $10.3 million received in the settlement agreement. 13 North Shore healthcare employees sued the Illinois hospital system in October 2021 alleging the hospital illegally refused to grant religious exemptions to the vaccine mandate. By the way, this was happening all across America. Liberty Council, which represented the workers, said that the settlement agreement, dated July 29th, impacts more than 500 current and former healthcare workers who were denied religious exemptions from the vaccine requirement. It's estimated that millions of Americans object to COVID-19 vaccines on religious grounds, including the fact that cell lines from aborted human fetuses have been utilized in production. Quote, we are very pleased with the historic $10 million settlement achieved in our class action lawsuit against North Shore University Health System, Liberty Council Vice President of Legal Affairs and Chief Litigation Counsel Horatio Mihet said in a statement. He goes on to say, the drastic policy change and substantial monetary relief required by the settlement will bring a strong measure of justice to North Shore's employees 
who were callously forced to choose between their conscience and their jobs. The settlement should also serve as a strong warning to employers across the nation that they cannot refuse to accommodate those with sincere religious objections to forced vaccination mandates. The settlement stipulates that North Shore also change its unlawful no religious accommodations policy to make it consistent with the law and to provide religious accommodations in every position across its numerous facilities. Again, this was always a requirement. Religious accommodations and exemptions have to be offered, but they simply haven't been when it comes to COVID-19 vaccine mandates and the courts didn't do much to address it. The media didn't cover it as though it was a legitimate dispute, taking sides in a biased fashion. The government was on the wrong side of the law. Doctors, public health officials, health systems, In regards to this settlement, employees who are fired because of their religious refusal to take the COVID-19 vaccine will be eligible to be rehired if they apply within 90 days of the final settlement approved by the court. Plus, this is good, rehired employees will return to their previous level of seniority. Anybody who lost a job due to their inability to comply with a mandate, as part of this case, is eligible to receive $25,000, and any of the 13 lead plaintiffs in the case are eligible for an additional $20,000, meaning they would receive $45,000 each in total, according to the head of the Liberty Council who brought the suit. Employees who ultimately receive the vaccine despite raising religious objections would be eligible to get about $3,000 in compensation, and the North Shore Settlement Agreement also sets aside $2 million for legal fees. I foresee a lot of court cases in our near future, the next one, two, five years, whereby fair courts will reverse what so many try to do, things that were unlawful or unconstitutional or didn't make sense. And I think someday when we look back, we're going to be ashamed at ourselves as a country for letting our public health officials and some of our elected officials do what they did to this country despite the fact that so many were advising different things and were silenced by big tech and the media and sometimes their own colleagues. So stay tuned. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast and that if so, you'll leave a great review, subscribe to it and share it with your friends. Check out my other podcast, Full Measure After Hours, And now you can support independent journalism by visiting CherylAckeson.com and clicking the store tab. There are some thought-provoking and fun products designed exclusively for independent and free thinkers like you with proceeds benefiting independent reporting causes. Do your own research, make up your own mind, think for yourself.